you have your Bibles, would you take them, please? I'm going to have you turn to Revelation chapter 2. This is the third in a series as we're going through the book of Revelation expositorily, taking it verse by verse. The title of this message today is Authentically Love Me Again. Authentically Love Me Again. Revelation is a Christ-centered book because everything points to Jesus and his word to us. Revelation is a relevant book because in it, Jesus knows exactly where you live. Revelation is a victorious book because it reveals how Jesus will return, how he will defeat all evil, establish his reign, and see his people as overcomers. And as we get in today, as we start into the letters to the seven churches, I believe that you will find that you are both encouraged and you will also be examined as we go through these in the next two chapters. In these letters to the churches, Jesus reveals to each of us what is really important to him. And so I would advise you, it would be wise of you to take notes as you're going through this. How many times, I I think back in my life, how many times have I said, I wish I knew what Jesus wanted me to do? Or I wish I knew how he wanted me to respond? Or I wish I knew how he wanted me to live? I want you to know that as we dive into these letters, you are going to discover exactly how Jesus wants to elevate your thinking and how he wants your behavior to be left at an altar of sacrifice so that he can mold you and make you into the person that he wants you to be. At the end of the letters to the churches at Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea, you will hear Jesus repeat a phrase again and again and again, and it's this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These seven churches embody the primary concerns of God for his churches, both then and today, wherever his church is found. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, as we approach your word this morning, you have told us repeatedly that we have the ability to hear what the Spirit says if we will just listen. And so I ask that you would release the work of your Holy Spirit and the anointing of your Holy Spirit in this place and online today so that every hearer of your word will be personally addressed by what you desire to say and to do. And then, Lord, when we have been examined by your Spirit, would you give us the courage to obey what you desire to do for your glory within our life? So at that day of judgment, we may not be found wanting. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we dive into this first letter today, I recognize that for some of you that have, may have studied Revelation in the past, that there have been those that have portrayed these letters to these seven churches that they weren't really churches but they were more about different ages of the church like the ephesians represented the apostolic age or the letter to to smyrna represented the age of the martyrs or the letter to pergamum represented the age of constantine and thyatira uh, represents the middle ages and sardis represents the reformation 
Uh, and, and the letter to Philadelphia represents a great missionary age. And finally, the, the last church, Laodicea, which is barely alive and neither hot and cold, the Lord says, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. That represents the modern age. I don't believe that that's the best application of this. I believe that these were actual churches, that these letters were written to actual churches. In fact, if you were to look at a map of the cities where they are represented, starting with Ephesus, they would make a rough circle, almost like it would be a postal delivery route. And each of these churches are listed within that order. I believe that John specifically says to us as we look at these letters in these two chapters that he clearly is talking to living churches that are facing real issues that represent actual congregations and not just prophetic congregations or prophetic ages. And I also believe that as we look at these, if you were to take a sampling of the church world today, you would find that all of the things that are addressed you will find in churches today. So the way I think you read these letters is you recognize that God was writing and speaking to real churches, but they also speak to us. The Scripture always speaks to us. We can go anywhere in the Scripture and find that there's something that Jesus wants to speak to us. And I believe with all of my heart, and I wouldn't preach Sunday after Sunday if I didn't believe that the Word conveys an authority and a power and a meaning and an application that can transform our lives and change us as a church. So what did the Spirit have to say to the church? What is He leading us to right away? Here's what you're going to notice as we get to these letters. Number one, you can find each letter begins with one of the sevenfold majestic characteristics that we talked about last week when we were describing the real Jesus. You're going to see that He's going to take one of these majestic applications and He's going to use that in the introduction to the letter of a church. Each letter, with the exception of two, contains, contains a commendation. Each letter, with the exception of two, contains a criticism. And each letter has a correction to the church. And each letter has a word of challenge. And so we start with Ephesus. Ephesus was a great city. It was probably one of the greatest cities in Paul's day as this book of Revelation was being revealed and written. It was a populated city. It was probably the most populated city in the Roman province of Asia at that time, which would be today in our western Turkey. And it was an advanced city for its day. In fact, it was said that if you stood on any main street and looked at the city, you would be able to see that in the center of it was an enormous amphitheater that could hold 25,000 people. It was the greatest city in Asia at the time. And now, at the writing of Revelation to the church of Ephesus, more than three decades have passed since Paul has been to the church. And this letter comes. This is a church, by the way, that historically had had some phenomenal pastors in its history. It was founded by Paul. It had been pastored by Timothy. It also had been pastored by John. Those are three pretty... I'm glad I don't have to follow either of those three in, in pastoring a church. And so they'd had a great history, some phenomenal pastors. And the four things that we're going to look at today are this. The character of Jesus, the commendation of Jesus, the correction of Jesus, and the calling. And the calling. So we start as we look into this, into the character of Jesus. Because the letter begins recognizing the characteristic of his sevenfold majestic nature when it says this. To the angel at the church in Ephesus write... By the way, if you recall from last week, we were talking about 
he holds in his hand the seven stars. And we, we looked at that as the meaning of if he's, holding, he's holding in his hand not only the churches, he's holding the pastors of those churches. That those stars represent the, the, majest, or the, the, the messenger aspect of those churches. And as I read that, to me as a pastor, this sense comes over me that there will come a day when I will have to stand before God, as every pastor will, and give an account for every word that I have spoken to you as a congregation. Being in the ministry is not something you just take for granted because there is a responsibility. I understand the need for the pastors to make sure that the doctrine that we proclaim is a doctrine that you can sink your life into and it will be real and it will be true and it will be pure. And he says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. One of the phrases that I love about this is when it talks about he's walking among the lampstands and that he's holding his hand. Do you know, church, that we are in his grip? We are in the hands of Jesus. How many of you needed to know that this week? There were times when you felt like you were pieces of sand slipping through his hand. And he wants to reveal, first of all, to you, he's got the church in his hand. That's really good for us to know because we don't know what's coming in the future. But I, what I do know is that the church of Jesus Christ will not leave the palm of his hand. And he's addressing a church at Ephesus that has been tempted by all kinds of religions. They were facing a unique materialism of their day. They were in an empire cult. They were facing persecution. And all these forces, including false teachers, had attempted to loosen the grip of the Lord on his church. And John, first of all, sees Jesus addressing the church by saying, I've got you in my grip. Oh, hallelujah. The second facet of the character of the Lord that is revealed here is that he walks among the lampstands. Now there's this interesting way of seeing this, two different ways. John is seeing a vision into eternity. So he, he sees things that are already to be, and at the same time there's a present application. In other words, he sees that eternity, Jesus has the church taken care of. He's already there. The church is already victorious. We've already won the battle. He's already done this work for us. And at the same time, he sees in the present tense that he is still walking among us. So we who know the end of the book already know that we are victorious. And yet there comes the comfort of not only are we with him in eternity, he is walking among us presently. The power and the presence of the Holy Spirit is in this room today walking among us and then there was one theologian that wrote this and i jotted it down because i thought it was such a beautiful image he said the image of the pastors and the angels as personified spirits and the stars in the hand of god he says represents the jewelry that jesus carries understanding how precious you are to him how precious is this church that the stars that he holds is like his jewels and his necklace that he displays, oh, how wonderful it is to be a part of his church. And then we get to verse 2, the, condom, or the, the commendation of Jesus. There's a big difference in those two words. I better get it right. The commendation of Jesus. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked men. 
You have tested those that claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered, have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And then if you jump to verse 7, he adds this on as well. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. One of the things I love about the way the scripture is written here is that before he gets to the stuff he wants to correct you about, he talks about all the good things in your life. Now, for those of you that may be employers, you know that when it comes time and it's time for you to sit down with your employees and kind of go over how things have gone, you'll always start with the good stuff. Let me tell you what I really enjoy about you. Let me tell you what I like about your nature. Let me tell you all your good qualities, and you know you're getting set up. So Jesus starts with this word of commendation before he gets to the correction. And what I love about this is it starts with this. Jesus is saying, I know. I know. There's nothing that is hidden from me. I see it all. I know it all. I know everything there is to know about you. So when he speaks and he starts out with, I know, he is speaking from a position of authority and wisdom and knowledge. And here's what he says to his church. First of all, I know your servanthood. I see this body of believers, this church at Ephesus, as a toiling church, a working church. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance, which means patient endurance. In other words, even when things are not easy, I see you're doing the right thing the right way at the right time and for the right reason. And you're not easily persuaded the works just describe the Christian life in general, our conduct for Christ. And he said, and their toil and their hard work indicates the effort by which they are engaged in to really do the work of the Lord and be Christians. And, and here was a church that not only stood under grace, but there was a church that was actively seeking ways that they could meet the needs of the people around them. They were an active church and finding ways that they could share the love of Jesus Christ. This was not a church that would sit around and wait for somebody else to do the ministry. This was a church that can be described as toiling, hard work, and enduring. And Jesus sees this as a beautiful quality to commend. They didn't grow tired in doing the will of God. How many of you, like me, have had days when you just want to give up? You're going, I just want to quit. The pastor never says anything about our ministry. Pastor never recognizes what we do. We're here all the time when we're doing this, you know, and we, and we start to get this little pity party about ourselves. Well, nobody ever sees what I do. I'm cleaning the bathrooms and nobody ever knows. Not even the germs thank me for killing them in there, you know. And, and we just begin to work ourselves into this aspect of, of, well, since nobody knows, I'm just going to quit. And, and Jesus was saying to the Ephesian church, I just want you to know, I see your toil. I'm keeping records. I know what's going on. They were believers in that church that counted it a privilege, counted it a privilege to be inconvenienced for the cause of Jesus. And that raises the questions as we look at our Christian life. As Jesus begins to address each of us with the aspect when he starts with these words, I know, what does he know about you? What would he say to each of us as I know? about your life. I know your thoughts. I know your works. Because he goes on from that to say this, that he commends their conviction and discernment. He said the church is not only a toiling church, but he indicates 
that you cannot tolerate wicked men, but have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, and you have found them false. Now, Paul had warned the Ephesian elders back in Acts chapter 20 that there would be false teachers that would try to sneak into the church and that they would come into the church for the specific purpose of trying to pollute the doctrine and draw people away. And so Paul, knowing that false doctrine pollutes and poisons and paralyzes, said, you're going to have to keep your eyes open in these last days of time because there will be false prophets that will try to lead you astray. You may wonder why we emphasize preaching and teaching the Bible here at Grace Assembly. It's the same reason that you have windows on your house. We want the light to come in and the bugs to stay out. We want the joy of the Lord's glory to come in, but we want the insects to stay out. And so doctrine matters. Rightly dividing the word matters. It matters how we build our life and what we build it on. And God expects his word to be the same for his church. And so we teach the word of God because we want to maintain a doctrinal purity. We want to expose the errors and false teachers. We want to protect the sheep that are entrusted to us. And we want to refuse to allow self-appointed leaders who have personal agendas to come in and help themselves to the sheep of Jesus Christ. And so doctrine matters. And Jesus commended the Ephesians for 35 years. For 35 years since Paul was your pastor, you have refused to compromise with sin to be accepted by the crowd. And you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We're going to learn a little bit more about the Nicolaitans in another letter later on. But the Nicolaitans were a group that bought in or brought into the church the idea of grace so radical that it didn't matter what your morals were. You could do just about anything you wanted and not worry about where you would spend eternity. Your, your duty and your morality, none of that mattered. And Ephesians were what church that the Lord was addressing and he, and he was saying to them, I've never had to worry that within your ranks that you would ordain a person who was an adulterer. I never had to worry about from within your ranks that you would ordain homosexuals into the ministry because you had tested the false prophets and you've kept the doctrine pure. I never worried about that with you. And so as I look at this, I'm, I'm seeing that if I were a visiting inspector visiting the Ephesian church I would find it a church that is working and testing and toiling and trying to do things right, and, and I would give it a triple-A rating. This would be a church that I would recommend to people, and there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the last thing Jesus says about this church because his next words under the correction of Jesus says this, yet I hold this against you. Let me tell you something, when Jesus addresses you personally or as a church and says, yet I hold this against you, you better listen. He says, you have forsaken your first love. He's walking among the churches. 
He sees things maybe the average observer does not pick up on. And the Lord, since he's the lover of the church, spots something in the Ephesian church that he wants to correct. And verse 4, he tells them, I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Scripture tells us about this Ephesian church and how it was begun that one day in the middle of this occultic city, the power of the Holy Spirit fell in a powerful way. And many believers that had been wrapped up in the occult came to Jesus Christ and were delivered. And when they saw the delivering power of the Holy Spirit, they began to take all of their scrolls and all of their magic potions and all of the things that they had kept them tied to the occult and all of the paraphernalia, which was in abundance in this demonically filled town. And they brought the material and they burned it in the town square as a declaration that I am different than who I was. Jesus set me free and I'm not going to look the same tomorrow as I did yesterday because of that. The Bible tells us that the value of all the stuff that was burned that day was 50,000 pieces of silver. Now if a piece of silver was worth a day's wage, in our culture today that would be the equivalent of a three to five million dollar bonfire of people who said, Jesus has set me free and I'm not going back. So great was their love for the Lord that they didn't even think twice about giving up those things that they had kept from him in their past. This church also had been taught by Paul, and and when we talk about him coming in and teaching, we're talking about him teaching for five or six hours at a time. And, And the word of God in the Ephesians, when it had first started, they're leaving town, and everywhere they go, they're telling people about Jesus. I mean, the gospel's spreading like crazy from Ephesus. They were effusive in the expression of first love because of what Jesus had done. And now the Lord coming to the church says, you have left your first love. How do we identify that in our life? How do we know when we have experienced the function of religion without the joy of the Lord? I think, first of all, it shows up in your worship. I think it shows up that you can just begin to go through the motions that you can walk into the room and as people are worshiping your mind maybe other places you can sing the songs and you know the words and you may even raise your hand in the right places but you know that something is not alive in you anymore and Jesus was saying this I I feel the love that you once had for me has drained because I sense it in your worship you've become functional you've lost your passion for me you don't seem hungry for my present like you used to be Another way we notice that in our life is is that we can get so busy with other things during the week, he no longer is the priority of everything. We no longer talk about him first. We no longer take the time in our day to honor him, but we just get busy and we relax and we recess from our passion and pursuit of his presence. And he looked at the Ephesians and he says, you have abandoned your first love. Just about every theologian I read likened it to this. When a bride and a groom get married, there's an obvious first love. But over time, people can get just accustomed to being together and can even just kind of cohabitate in the same house, but they've lost that personal attention with one another. They no longer sense the same thing. They no longer give way for one another. And he says it gets easy just to live a life and wear the ring have the name, but lose the sense of awe and wonder of 
being in partnership. And Jesus was saying, you've, you've lost that. I think it's a perfect description that the Apostle Paul is saying and is reflected in his words, the loss of first love, the initial glow is gone. And here's a church that is now doing all the right things for sense of duty rather than a sense of love. Dr. George Wood put it this way when he wrote about this passage. He said, I wonder if for the Ephesians, the reason they lost their first love is that they were busy standing on their orthodoxy or making sure that their doctrine was pure. They were busy contending for the truth. They were slapping down false prophets that rose up in their midst. Sometimes when people who stand for purity of doctrine the most, it's easy for them to slide off the edge and become unloving in their spirit. And some of the people who are the most unloving people in the whole Christian faith are those the most who cry the most eloquently about defending the fundamentals of faith but do so without a heart of love for God and for people. Even being perfect doctrinally is not a substitute for love. And Jesus says this of his church, you have forsaken you have left your first love. Notice that he didn't say you've lost your first love. He said you have left it. There's a difference in lost and left. Because if love were a matter of feeling, if it was something that happens to you, then you don't have any responsibility for it and you could lose it. But love is not located in the feelings. Contrary to the romantic notions of the Western world, love is not a feeling. Scriptures identify love as being in the will. We choose to love. We act on that. It's an act of the will of the Father that sent the Son to die for us. And out of an act of His will, He did so. And we respond out of an act of will for us. It can be gained and it can be left. And He said to this church, you left or you abandoned your first love. And because it can be restored, it is correctable. He said, if it was in the feelings, you would have to wait for this mysterical, magical feeling to return. But it's not. It's in the will, so you can correct it. And the Lord is saying to his church today, I have never left my first love of you. I still feel the same way about you today as the day that I willingly allowed myself to be incarnated and come and live among you. I feel the same way about you as when I willingly gave myself to die on the cross so that your sins would not have to be held against you forever. I feel the same way about you as I did when I was resurrected from the dead in all of the glory of the Lord, and I am interceding to the Father on your behalf from this very moment. I've never left my first love of you. It's a part of my will. And then it leads us to, lastly, the calling of Jesus when he says this, Remember the height from which you have fallen. It's almost as if there's the visual here of we've been climbing a ladder of righteousness and we get to the top and, and we so enjoyed the view that we forgot where we were going and we fell off the ladder and collided with the floor in a thud. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The Lord gives a correction to the Ephesians 
that's important for us today. He says three things. He says, remember, repent, and repeat. Remember, go back to that time when your love was at first. Recall it. For those of you that can re- remember what it was like after you got saved, you could not wait to go and tell everybody about what Jesus had done for you. You didn't care what they thought. You'd been transformed. You were brand new. You were a new creature. You were living in the grace and glory of God, and you couldn't wait to tell everybody. He says, remember that, and then repent. Let me tell you something. Repent is a far stronger word here than what we give it credit for in our English language. Repent does not mean I raised my hand in a service once and I said a hell insurance prayer and walked out and lived like I wanted. Repent means that I am addressed by God and His Holy Spirit tells me what I need to change. And when He saves me, I turn around and I walk a new way. I don't go the way I did before. I've been made brand new and repent. Stop what you're doing. Go back to what you were doing before. And then he says, and repeat it. The consequence of repentance is that you go back to him. I just quickly want to say there's something really interesting that goes on in the way that these words are in Greek. Because every one of them, when we look at these, these are three imperatives that are being used. The imperative to remember, the imperative to to repent, and the imperative to do it again. But the imperative to remember is the past tense. Remember and go on remembering. In other words, he says, constantly remember. Constantly remember where you were. Constantly get up in the day and remember the first love that you had. But the word repent, interesting enough, is not in the present tense. And it, or it's a present tense and not a past tense. In other words, it's almost as if Jesus is saying these two things need to come together. It would be as if a parent were watching their child getting ready to run out into the road full of traffic and the parent would yell at them, Stop! Turn around! Those two words would be together. This is the Spirit speaking to the church at Ephesus and to Grace Assembly. Stop what you're doing and turn around right now. Remember and repent. Present tense. Instantly. You stop what you're doing when addressed by the Spirit. And you come back in one decisive action. Worship team, if you'd please come. Because here's what the Lord says happens if you don't. If you don't repent, I will remove your lampstand. Now, I need you to understand that he's not talking specifically to individuals here about removing your salvation. There are times, and it's confusing because there's times when something is being addressed to the church, and in the very same paragraph, it'll be something addressed to the individual. This was to the church, and here's what he's talking about. Please, please pay attention. He is saying to the church, if you are not going to continue to rely on the power of my Holy Spirit to love people the way you ought to, I will remove the influence that your church has in its community. I will remove your lampstand. You take the love of Jesus out of a church and its witness is going to die. When that church in the eyes of the Lord fails to meet his requirements, he removes the lampstand. And I really believe what that means is he simply removes his presence. There may be people still go to that church, but they don't even know he's not there anymore. They get so used to the function of just being together, they don't know life has gone.
following that threat, there's a challenge. You who have an ear. You who have the ability to feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit right now. You who don't even know why you came here this morning. We're under a divine directive because the Spirit wanted to speak to you today. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. I'm going to ask that you would stand with me and we're going to sing a chorus and then I'm going to wrap this up for you with a final thought. And as we're singing, would you ask the Spirit, speak to me so I can hear what you have to say to me today. After speaking to the church, he says to the individual, to him who overcomes or who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Here the Lord puts an image within this passage of when he created man and woman and he put them in paradise in the garden. And in this paradise, he put two trees. One was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the other was the tree of life. He never told man not to eat of the tree of life. But he told them they couldn't eat of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course, human nature is such that the human race chose to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and taste sin rather than taste life. And now God places before his people an image. He says, you're going to come to a place of paradise if you will overcome, if you will, if you will run back to your first love and if you will seek me with your heart and have that initial joy again. I want you to know that I am going to give you the opportunity to be restored and you may taste of the fruit of the tree of life. To him who overcomes. Overcoming doesn't have anything to do with your hard work. 
doesn't have anything to do with anything except the fact that he has provided salvation through grace and his mercy to you. Revelation 12, when we get there, it talks about how we are conquerors. We conquer by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Jesus Christ has provided you an opportunity to know him personally. And in the decision that you make there will determine how your eternity, you are going to live forever. Your soul is going to live forever. Where it lives forever is entirely in your control right now. So I'm going to ask that you would close your eyes and bow your heads for a minute. Maybe you're here today and you didn't know that just attending church was not the way to go to heaven. Maybe you thought that I have something in my ability that if I just work hard and if I'm a good person, I can go to heaven. And today may be the first time that you have found out that Jesus Christ, acknowledging his sacrifice, acknowledging that he died for you to forgive you of your sins and to make you a brand new creature was the only way that you can get to heaven. And you're here today and your heart is pounding because the Holy Spirit is convincing you that this is the way. I'm going to ask if that's you today and you say, Pastor, I want to know today that my, lamb, my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm going to ask that you would just slip up your hand. I'm going to acknowledge it and then you can put it right back down. Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. As I'm starting over here on your right side of my left, you just want to be sure, yes, sir, I agree with you. Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Yes, sir, I agree with you. Moving now over into the right center. Is God knocking on the door of your heart today? Is this your moment that he's going to give you a first love? And now I want to ask a question of the church while your eyes are closed. How many of you today have been challenged by the Holy Spirit that you need to have your first love renewed? If you're here today, would you just raise your hands? Yes, yes, yes. All across this room. Father, I know that your Holy Spirit has been at work because of the response of your people. You are knocking on the door of hearts. And right now there is a celebration taking place on the main streets of heaven because there are new names that are being written down in the Lamb's Book of Life at this moment from this room, Lord. Those who have said, I am tired of being the way I was, I'm coming to you and recognizing that you are my Lord and you are my Savior. I receive you right now and I'm going to repent of my sins and follow you. We rejoice with them today that they can have the assurance of their salvation. But Lord, the letter to the church at Ephesus had to do with good people working hard. And they needed to be reminded that their goodness earns them nothing. Those rewards you'll take care of, but that they have a heart issue of loving you. And today, around this room, there are many of us that raised our hand and said, yes, I need a restoration of my first love. My life has become one of Christianity's functionality. I feel myself going through the motions more than I sense the life of Christ coursing through my spirit and today Lord I repent I remember I repent and I come running back to you renew me and restore me in the power of the name of Jesus we pray amen I just want you to know that starting next week we are going to begin to have altar calls again 
We're going to have our elders will be here to anoint people with oil and pray with them as we begin to try to find ways to, to function a little bit more normally again. Thank you for all that you do to make sure that we can stay healthy in this. But let me tell you something today. Somebody that you're going to run in today needs to hear your testimony. Somebody needs to know about your Jesus. So would you love them with the love of the heart of God? It just might be that it was a divine appointment to transform their life for his sake. May God bless you.